morning, everybody. I'm Stuart Oppenheimer, minister at Brighouse United Church for just over 30 years. The people of Brighouse are very patient and kind people. And uh, outside of our church, we have a sign, and under Brighouse United Church, um, it says, an evangelical congregation. Uh, pastors in the pastor's prayer group out from Richmond that I gather with say that when I introduce myself, I should always tell that so that uh, people have an idea where I'm coming from. And I notice it's about 5 to 12, and I don't have a five-minute sermon, and I don't know when it's supposed to end, uh, but at Brighouse, I try to encourage people to think of hockey games and how excited people get if we go into overtime. <laughs> so, and I, I think one of the worst things in life is a dry sermon, so <laughs> I do have some water with me. Let's pray. Oh God, guide my thoughts and words that what is spoken may be found in accord with your word and pleasing in your sight. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to be at work in each one of us as we place ourselves under the authority of your word, as we ponder it, and we invite you to work in us, to cleanse us, to correct us, to affirm us, to heal us, to reveal truth to us, that we may serve you well and walk in your light. In Jesus' name, amen. In the life of the church, there have been times when the message of Jesus Christ has been welcomed and times when it has been very unwelcome and even violently resisted. We read about one from Acts. Uh, this is chapter 2. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Doesn't that just make you want to be a part of that earliest Christian community? Later in Acts, though, which we read, or rather uh, Kenneth read, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. In Jesus' ministry, when he had a high approval rating, uh, the, the times when he had a high approval rating from the general population were very few. Most of the time he was opposed, rejected, or scoffed at. But Jesus did not let this slow him down, nor stop him from pushing forward with his mission, the proclamation and demonstration of the kingdom of God and his death for humanity's sin and resurrection to eternal life. Currently in Canadian society, there's often an atmosphere of negativity towards religion. It seems especially towards the Christian faith, which creates a very intimidating atmosphere for followers of Jesus. Supposedly, we're told religion does not belong in the public arena, nor in the realm of ideas. Many churches, thank God, are vibrant, active, and full of people. However, there are many others that are in decline and some have even closed. 
Some Christians have concluded that there's really not much that can be done about it. But the scriptures and church history would suggest that we should not focus on these attitudes and trends. This isn't the first time in history that the church has been in decline in some areas of the world, nor when society has been hostile or resistant to the good news of Jesus Christ. Some of the history which I'm about to refer to, I learned about at a Regent College pastor's conference some years ago. In the year 590 AD, a Christian leader named Gregory was appointed the Bishop of Rome. This was in the days when there was only one worldwide church and its leadership was based in Rome, which was at the heart of the Roman Empire. This is 900 years before Martin Luther called for the reformation of the church. Upon his election as bishop and pope, Gregory said, I am now in charge of a grievously shattered ship. John Wesley, the great evangelical reformer of the 1700s, said that Gregory, Gregory was, in his opinion, the last good pope. During the prior two to three centuries, after decades of persecuting Christians, the Roman Empire had become open to Christianity and adopted it. Gregory had lived during some of the glory days of Rome and of the Christian church. By the time he was elected Bishop of Rome in 590, there had been many military invasions of Rome and repeated sieges. As Gregory's term as Bishop of Rome continued, the majority of public buildings were irreparably damaged. There was continual fear of fever, flooding, drought, famine, and the plague. In fact, one-third of Rome's population was wiped out by the plague. It was an age when there were no antiseptics, analgesics, or antibiotics, and there was much suffering. During Gregory's time, as leader, all civic services disintegrated. There were no games, no education, there was no grain, no government, and no civic services. Gregory tried to save the city. He stepped in and organized the administration of the city. He even negotiated with invaders like the Lombards. But Gregory was witnessing the end of Roman civilization and of the broadly Christian society which he had known. Gregory was Bishop of Rome for 14 years. The last six of those years he spent in bed, worn down with perpetual pain and many ailments. Yet, he worked tirelessly to the best of his ability. He contributed positively to the well-being of the church. He focused on the future and on what was in front of him and gave all he had for the cause of Christ. Gregory was very godly and a devoted servant of Jesus. He balanced active service with deep prayer and worship. He promoted a life of prayer for all, not just clergy and monks. He sent missionaries, including Augustine, to re-evangelize England, where the gospel had been received a few hundred years previously by some. By Gregory's time, though, in the British Isles, many had turned back to pagan religion. Gregory's missionary endeavor is credited with firmly establishing Christianity in England. And he also sent missionaries to Germany and other parts of Europe to further evangelize there. 
Gregory also wrote and preached extensive sermons on Job and Ezekiel, which has since become Christian classics. He wrote many biographies of great Christians. He also wrote a book entitled Discourse on Pastoral Care for Ministers to Use. It lay unknown for 200 years after his death. It was then discovered, its value was recognized, and it was made available to all involved in ministry as essential reading. Rome was in tatters and being dominated by, by barbarian invaders. It's good to remember this word from the prophet Jeremiah in such a situation. We are to build houses and plant gardens and pray for the welfare of the city, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. It is pleasing to God for us to pray and work for the welfare of our city, our country, and its people. Gregory did that then. We can do that now. Like Gregory the Great, as he is now known, we can turn our faces towards current and future Christian missions, rather than looking back with regret at the loss of the way the church and society used to be. In Gregory's lifetime, the church in Rome did not experience a great revival. However, Gregory and many other Christians continued the work of the gospel as God led and empowered them. Some years ago, J. Edwin Orr, a widely respected historian, described the situation in parts of the United States in the 1780s, just after their hard-fought war of independence. Apparently, drunkenness was epidemic, and the streets were judged not to be safe at night. The Methodists were losing more members than they were gaining. In a typical Congregationalist church, 16 years has passed without one young person joining the fellowship. The Lutherans were languishing so much that they discussed uniting with the Episcopalians who were doing even worse. The Protestant bishop of the Episcopal uh, Diocese of New York said, uh, Samuel Provost, he quit, punch, he quit functioning. He had performed no duties for so long that he decided he was out of work, so he took up other employment. What discouraging times for the Christian church those must have been. Then Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madison, that the church was too far gone ever to be redeemed. Author Tom Paine echoed, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. At Harvard University, a Christian institution, one believer could be found in the whole student body. At Princeton, only two believers could be found in the student body, and only five students did not belong to the filthy speech movement of that day. On some campuses, the few Christians met in secret and kept their minutes in code so that no one could find out about them. But around that same time, a prayer movement began to take shape in England called the Union of Prayer. Shortly afterward, what was termed a Great Awakening began to sweep Great Britain as many people came to faith in Christ. And in New England, there was a prayerful pastor named Isaac Battist, who in 1794 addressed an urgent plea for prayer for revival to ministers of every Christian denomination in the United States. 
All the churches adopted the plan until the United States was interlaced with a network of prayer meetings, which set aside the first Monday of each month to pray. It was not long before a time of revival, renewal, and restoration came. Out of these great awakenings in Britain and the U.S. came the modern missionary movement and its societies, the abolition of slavery, popular education, Bible societies, Sunday schools, and many social benefits. As we read in Acts today, after the stoning of Stephen, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Believers scattered. Saul worked at trying to snuff out the church. But those who were scattered continued to preach the word wherever they went. Philip in parts of Samaria, to the Ethiopian official in transit in Gaza, and to people in Azotus and Caesarea. The apostles preached the word in many towns in Samaria, we're told. They did not huddle in Jerusalem nor take time to wish that things were different. They did the work which God placed before them. And, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they fixed their eyes on Jesus and followed his leading as they continued to cooperate with him in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. God is very much at work in the world today in creative and varied ways to reach out to those who do not know Christ. I recall from my sabbatical in 2012 that Holy Trinity Brompton Anglican Church in London, England is being used by God to spread the gospel in many ways. My wife Anne and I had the privilege of visiting there. And I know I've seen the Alpha Course sign outside um, Bethany Baptist, and we also have uh, run it at Brig House about 14 times. The Alpha Course, an introduction to the Christian faith, originated at Holy Trinity Brompton. And when we were there, it had al already reached two or three million people in the world. And there were active uh, uh, efforts to train teams to send them all over the world to train pastors uh, how to run the course and providing them with all the resources they could need. They were just cranking out the good news of Christ in many ways. It was amazing. Holy Trinity Brompton also played a major role in establishing an evangelical Anglican seminary in London called St. Miletus. Many young people have been studying there to be ministers and have been ordained to ministry in England. I find that very encouraging. I hope you do. Holy Trinity has planted well over 30 evangelical Anglican churches in England. At the request of a bishop, they send ministers and a team of lay members to reopen closed churches. We visited one which had recently reopened after being allowed to, to uh, just deteriorate empty for 20 years. Uh, the congregation that came to inhabit it spent 150,000 pounds to, to renovate it and make it inhabitable. Uh, their only bathroom was just off the kitchen and it was not much bigger than this pulpit. But uh, they were all excited because a new one was on the way. It was amazing to see, and I couldn't help but say to God, this is an amazing anointing. Would you do something like that in Canada? 
Right here in Richmond, God is at work in many creative and effective ways, including in the churches represented here today. God is at work in our day despite the difficulties which we may face. We don't know if times will remain difficult for the church as they did in the early church and in the 600s during Gregory's time, or if the Lord might send another great awakening, a great time of evangelism and a powerful revival of the Christian church in our day. In such times as those in which we are living, I've made a list of seven things. We can remember that God loves us. We are all in his hands and he knows his plans for us all. And he loves all the people of the world. He is not about to abandon efforts to reach the lost. Secondly, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that, Romans 8 that when we do not know how to pray, and that's how I often feel, I don't know how to pray. What is God wanting? Uh, what shall we pray for in this uh, society in which we are living? The Holy Spirit intercedes for us according to the Father's will. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel, and he promised always to be with us to the end of the age. Right now, the Holy Spirit is interceding for his church, interceding for us. Third, only a work of the Spirit can accomplish God's will and empower and guide his work. We need not try to come up with great plans or rush out and try to do great things for God in our own strength. That is not life-giving and will tire us out. Jesus said that he will build his church, not that we should. Jesus did only what he saw the Father doing. We need to follow the Lord's lead as well, watching for signs of the Holy Spirit at work and supporting what God is doing. I'm almost done if it's any comfort to you. <laughs> Fourth, we can focus on the primary mission of the church. I think that's what Gregory the Great did. He focused on the primary mission of the church, and I guess the people who uh, called the church in the United States to pray in the 1790s was really trying to do that as well. Focus on God. Turn to, turn to the Lord and draw near to him and bring the situation of their day before him. We can focus on loving our neighbors, sharing the gospel, and making disciples in Jesus' name as the Holy Spirit leads. The scriptures tell us God loves the world. He loved it so much he sent his only son. And he desires that none should be lost and all should be saved. We all have free will, but that's God's desire. Five, as Paul encouraged his readers to do, we can pray for God to open doors for the gospel and ask for his wisdom in sharing it. Six, look to the future with hope and trust in God and be faithful, putting our hands to the plow and fixing our eyes on Jesus. We don't know what God might call each of us or us as various churches alone or together to do in the future. But our part 
is to make ourselves fully available to him with no strings attached. I conclude with Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ever ask for or even think of, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray together. Dear Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your message. Thank you for the message you remind us. You are the only focus that we should have. And thank you for today. You give us a message so we can continue. Wherever we go, we bring the gospel with us. So we can pass the message to all the people who doesn't know you. And God help us, so we will have a final inspiration and also the prayer. But help us, so when we today, we dismiss, so we can continue to bring the gospel to wherever we, you want us to go. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Church, would you all rise again as we sing our song of response, our closing song, all to us. Precious cornerstone Sure foundation You are faithful To the end We are waiting On you Jesus We believe You're all to us Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe you're all to us. Let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. We believe you're
As we dismiss here this morning, we've got coffee out in the foyer and we want to encourage you to take some time and meet someone that you have not yet met from one of those other congregations because we are one church. And as that song says, that Christ is all to us and he makes us one. And Paul puts it this way, in Colossians chapter 3 that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, Scythian or barbarian or slave or free. We could also say that there is no longer Chinese or Japanese or Filipino, that there is no longer German or English or French or Canadian or American or Mexican. We are one in Christ. He's the one who makes us one. So circulate with your brothers and sisters and enjoy the fact that we are part of one family because Christ makes us one and go forward 
this new year living as one. God bless you. Amen. Child of God, yes, I.